Hello, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw from the University of Utah, your host for this season of the podcast, and I'm excited to bring you today's episode. We're going to discuss a topic that's really a common discussion point if you operate in the transplant space, which is marijuana use and heart transplantation. A little bit of background on this issue. Marijuana is the most commonly used illicit drug in the United States. Rapid growth with recreational use is now legal in 17 states, medical legal use in 36 states, just recently legalized in New York State. And from a transplant perspective, we're really going to break down what is the impact potentially on medication adherence, outcomes after transplant, and drug-drug interaction. So for the Heart Failure Society B, we, we recently put together a committee to help bring up topics to discuss for our podcast, and this one really rose to the top quite quickly. And we've invited three guests today that are frankly experts in the area. Uh, our guests include Dr. Celia DeFilippis. She's currently a general cardiology fellow at Columbia in New York City, and she's a future heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow. She's co-authored multiple papers on today's topic, including a review in Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation and a general overview on marijuana and cardiovascular disease published as a Jack review topic. Along with Dr. DeFilippis, we have Dr. Eileen Sheesh. She's the medical director for the Heart Transplant Program at the Cleveland Clinic. She has specialty interests in heart failure in women and heart transplantation. And we have Dr. Kathleen Falkenberg, Cardiology Clinical Pharmacist Coordinator at the University of Kentucky. Eileen and Kathleen co-authored a paper published earlier this year that really sparked this original interest for the podcast on, in the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation titled The Growing Dilemma of Legalized Cannabis and Heart Transplantation. So I welcome all of you for joining us today. We'll start with Eileen and Kathleen. From your perspectives, what are the main concerns that exist regarding the use of marijuana and heart transplant with respect to patient care and with respect to outcomes? Yeah, I think my top three concerns are noncompliance, graft failure, and death. And these concerns are actually based on uh, Medicare analysis of kidney transplant recipients that included over 50,000 patients that had a small percent with cannabis use disorder, but still amounted to actually thousands of patients with cannabis use disorder. And so when they followed these patients uh, and compared them to those that did not have cannabis use disorder, there was a higher rate within the first three years of noncompliance, graft failure, and death. And I think what was concerning, the death wasn't even, you know, just because the kidney died. The death was also just due to motor vehicle accidents, a higher rate. So um, it raised a lot of concern for me. I think the other things that we think about are more controversial. I really think that the analysis is limited. You know, we have concerns about infections, specifically fungal infections, based on actually anecdotal, you know, cases that actually did have fungemia associated. So it was usually aspergillus, but that predated actually um, regulated cannabis usage for which you would heat the product. And so um, we all think that perhaps when you actually can heat the product, you may not have um, a risk of fungemia, but uh, we don't know that because actually cannabis 
also alters your immune system. So it's possible you could be more susceptible. The second is cancer. And I think that we all kind of, you know, worry about the risk of lung cancer associated with inhaling the product. But uh, there was a recent meta-analysis for all types of cancer. And really, it's incredibly hard to prove that cannabis is associated because of the concomitant usage of tobacco. So people who smoke joints like to also smoke (laughs) cigarettes too. So it's a little bit challenging to actually figure out which one they did and what caused what. Ironically, uh, what was, or I think it's just odd, that was associated with cannabis use was actually a higher rate of testicular cancer. So germ cell cancer, which I thought was a little odd, um, but that was the only one associated. Celia, what do you think? I agree with everything that's already been said. The things that I would add is that in observational studies, even when adjusting for tobacco use, we also know that marijuana use disorder has been associated with increased rates of arrhythmias, um, as well as stroke um, and other vascular events. Uh, which obviously are not isolated, although they weren't studied in heart transplant recipients specifically. But again, those would be additional risks for our patients after heart transplant as well. So Kathleen, what are the considerations when we talk about drug-drug interactions for patients that are using cannabis for any reason if they have a solid organ transplant? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And as a pharmacist, that's something that's always high priority on, on my to-do list is to, to look at the different drug interactions. And so um, the thing is with cannabis is that it can interact with some of our backbone immunosuppressive agents like our calcium inhibitors, um, can also interact with the mTOR inhibitors as well. So it shares a common metabolic pathway um, in the liver, the CYP3A4 enzyme specifically in the mTOR inhibitors and the calcium inhibitors are actually substrates for that enzyme. And when you add or mix in THC or cannabis, that can potentially increase systemic exposure. And these agents, we consider them to be a very narrow therapeutic index. And so what that ultimately does is it increases um, the risk for adverse drug reactions. I think the other thing to keep in mind too, is that this can interact with some of the other um, agents that we use for prevention of opportunistic infections as well. And I think the last thing that I'll, I'll mention is that a lot of people view this as a natural supplement, as an herbal supplement. So when you're mixing that with these prescription medications and we know what we're getting in our prescription meds, um, we have no idea how much of THC or uh, CBD that we get with cannabis. And so even between plants or between different things that you're ingesting, we really don't know how much of those chemicals are in there and that are potentially using or causing the interaction. And then I think the last thing is how often you use them and the frequency that you use them. So it's a very complex um, sort of interplay to try to uh, predict what the um, interaction is going to be. But I think the bottom line is that we know that they interact and we know that it can potentially increase the risk of having adverse drug reactions for medications that have some pretty serious side effects. Right. And I think, you know, when we're talking about particularly heart transplant and, you know, it's such a finite amount of organs available. Uh, We hold the bar very high for our recipients in terms of candidacy. One of the issues that comes up sometimes is this, this blur between substance abuse disorder versus using cannabis either for medical reasons or recreational reasons. And Celia, I'll start with you. When you 
kind of think through those three different areas, medicinal versus recreational versus actually a substance abuse problem. How do you, what have you seen and what have you read and what have you written about, frankly, from a heart transplant perspective? How can those be looked at from a transplant uh, team? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Kevin. I think specifically I'll start with the term cannabis use disorder, which is the term that's used in the latest uh, DSM-5, which is really specifically chosen because people can be negatively impacted by cannabis use without just being addicted. But even we know that the physical withdrawal syndrome of cannabis, regardless of whether it's used for um, medicinal or recreational purpose, does have a withdrawal syndrome that can parallel other drugs such as cocaine and heroin, which is why we think that there um, is an addictive quality to it. The cannabis use disorder term specifically requires that people be using for over one year. Um, But again, I think when we're evaluating candidates for transplant, we're thinking about this in terms of their um, evaluation by a social worker as well as um, a psychologist or a psychiatrist and looking to see if there are signs of cravings. Are there problems at work or in the home setting or trouble with their relationships? Do they have any signs of tolerance or withdrawal or difficulty cutting down, which really could extend to medicinal or recreational use? And I think the big concerns that have been alluded to as well is if that affects their day-to-day functioning, including their ability to come to appointments, to get biopsies or whatever other monitoring they need for their drug therapy, and even just to take their medications regularly, especially given the data suggesting higher rates of non-adherence. Yeah. And, you know, Eileen, different, different transplant programs basically have different approaches to this issue. Uh, I'm sure Cleveland Clinic has their own approach. Different centers have their own approach. I know some surveys have been done specifically trying to capture what's going on nationwide. And from your experience, what what have you seen, Eileen, and what have you heard sort of at your center or other centers in terms of how prior marijuana use is sort of approached from a transplant candidacy perspective? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really important point that there's variation across the United States. There's also variation within the state of any state. And then there's also variation within the organs. So I think one of the surveys that really hit home and, and made us aware of, uh, of the various practices was when the American Society of Transplantation surveyed its members and noted just wide variations so that only 55% of the transplant centers um, even screened their patients for, for cannabis use. Okay, that means 45% didn't, not regularly. So if you don't ask, you don't know. That's a, that's a difference in practice. 28% of those surveyed rejected all patients. They didn't really care whether or not they were using it frequently, not frequently. Just 28% claimed they rejected all of them. 52% rejected based on the organ that was being transplanted. So they recognized that within their institution, there were differences based on the organ. And 11% actually allowed edible-only cannabis. So right there, you get you know a sense that there's um, wide variations. And if you're a patient who actually has you know been using It doesn't seem fair that you could go to one center and you get a no, which could be closer to your home. And then you have to go 
to another center in a different state to continue to use. And that is where it becomes very problematic and hard to have that conversation with the patient, right? When you say no and another center says yes and you know, and it gets even more challenging when actually the states um, have different laws and those laws change. So there are some states, Celia, you wrote this uh, first, that some states even have, you know, policies that prohibit you from actually rejecting uh, a candidate. Um, so this becomes complicated, but there are, you know, ways to, to treat this in a fair manner. But right now, there's incredible variation. I completely agree. Um, Celia, Kathleen, any other thoughts on this issue? Just the fact that it seems to me that statewide, the issue keeps going in one direction and that you see more legalization. But from a transplant center perspective, the variability is really all across the board. And frankly, if you're a patient, it has to be challenging. What, uh, what are either of your thoughts on it or what have you seen professionally? I think one thought, and I'd be curious to hear what other people think, is I do think that although this is difficult to codify if you're putting together a policy or a guideline, I think that there may be a gestalt that people think differently about two, two sets of different candidates. So one would be you know, a young person who comes in with acute fulminant cardiogenic shock has not really had a relationship with a transplant physician and comes in and is really sick, right, on temporary MCS. And then it comes up in their eval that they've been using marijuana socially. And if there aren't any significant contraindications or red flags that have been raised by the psychiatric evaluation as well as a social work evaluation, I think people might think about that candidate different than someone who has been being followed for years on an outpatient basis, progressing towards advanced therapies, who has a period of time that they can comfortably wait to show abstinence and have that relationship. And I think that that's kind of a challenging position for for people to be in. And I'm sure that there's differences that occur at the center level based on that. But I think that it seems to me from my experience that people think about those two situations a little bit differently. I think that tugs at the heart of every transplant center, right? You, You really hit the moments where it really hurts. You don't very often see a 70-year-old with cannabis use disorder. We, we have, but it's not as often. So it's, uh, and there should be a different approach towards somebody with a use disorder uh, versus actually someone with social, you know, recreational usage. Yeah. So I think, you know, my initial thoughts are when you have somebody um, that's using cannabis is, you know, are we identifying, are they self sort of treating and is there a better agent out there that they could be on? And then are we, are we making sure that we're gathering and have time to gather the resources to put them on an agent that might actually be beneficial, not just for the interim period, but then I think the longevity, because certainly there's a lot of uh, psychological aspects going into transplant, but there's just as many, if not more after transplant. Um, And so I think to me, that's one of the other issues that, that we should look at tackling is, is potentially switching them to another agent that might be a little bit more effective and beneficial. 
So you just nailed on another subject, which is really super important, which is that one transplant program uh, published an analysis, it was small, where they actually sent their cannabis use disorder patients to, uh, to be evaluated for ChemDEP, and they found a very high rate of polysubstance abuse, so that the person who uses cannabis, um, I think something like 20% of them also were uh, polysubstance abusers, but um, a very high percent had, had coping problems and they had depression, anxiety, and that those really are treatable very treatable. And we really, before we put them on high dose steroids, it would be really nice to not have them emotionally all over the place, but instead on some other agents. So I think the point is well taken. I, I agree. Some, sometimes the, the substance abuse that's found out really may just be the tip of the iceberg of some other greater issues. And obviously, I think it's our, our professional role as transplant programs to identify those and really figure out what we can modify uh, to help patients have fantastic outcomes. Eileen, you sort of mentioned this, and I'd ask really the whole group this, when we talk about fairness and organ allocation, this is, I think, this is one of these issues that because there's so much diversity across the transplant program uh, approach, it can make it very challenging from a patient perspective to know, and frankly, I've seen this professionally too, where a patient comes to a program with end-stage heart failure, and they were even told potentially by a medical uh, team to consider using marijuana to help palliate some of their heart failure symptoms. And the poor patient comes for evaluation, and they find out that the transplant program, that's an absolute no, or it's a, you know, a sobriety contract or something along those lines. So what are the thoughts in terms of how does this, how does this conversation or what would be the next steps from a transplant perspective to try to create some fairness across uh, across centers so patients have a better understanding uh, of what they're getting themselves into. And Eileen, maybe we can start with you. I think it, this is solvable. I actually think it's not impossible at all. I think it's really interesting that heart transplant is actually the only surgery we have that follows an international guideline. Think about it international guideline. We have UNOS, but we file, follow ISHLT guidelines, okay? It's the ISHLT, the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, it's their guidelines that say that poly, you know, substance abuse, abuse of a substance, excluding cannabis, uh, not, it left cannabis up to each program, but it's the, it provided an absolute contraindication to substance abuse. And that actually has become our international guidelines that really that UNOS expects us to follow. And then we have state regulation on top of it. But because we all follow the international guidelines, I think we have to look at the data that we have and make a decision so that there is fairness. We don't have to base that fairness on whether the state you know, happens to have regulation for this or that. We have always followed international guidelines, and that is what we need to continue to do because it required actually an international approach to actually, even for this pandemic now, to actually know how to best manage 
We've always done it as an international team. We united right from the beginning. I have, you know, met people from countries I've never even gone to because that is how we've approached transplantation. So I think it can be done and I think it should be done that way. And what we need to decide is what aspect of cannabis is, is unacceptable. And if I could add that actually the Canadian, uh, during this pandemic, actually published their uh, Canadian Cardiovascular Society, um, Canadian Cardiac Transplant Network recommendations. And it required six months of abstinence if you were basically inhaling. So smoking or vaping or or using any kind of inhaled product prior to listing. But you had to have a completion of a, a, a chemical uh, dependency not only evaluation, but you have to complete the program with six months absence if you had use disorder. And I think that it's the use disorder that is an addiction. That is what we're really most concerned about is when you're frequently using, it really affects the drug levels substantially. And it really probably, as we saw with the kidney transplant, poses the highest risk for graft failure and death. So I think that is uh, what we need to kind of make our international rules. Those are, those are great points. Celia, do you have anything to add to that sort of, how do we, how do we move this forward? How do the societies move this forward or frankly, our community move this forward? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the question that I still don't know if we as a scientific community have answered is, is there a safe level or way to use marijuana? And I think the answer to that is that we need more data because even, you know, marijuana is still considered a schedule one medication or drug by the DEA and the FDA. So we, you can't conduct rigorously controlled trials of marijuana products. So that's a big barrier. And I think even in the studies that we do have, there's so much variation in formulation and dose. And so to determine a dose dependency effect is very challenging. And so to me, the question is, yes, there's, there's clear issues with people who have, or to me, clear issues with people who have a substance use disorder, but even for people who don't have those red flags, can they use it safely? And I don't think we can answer that because even in right now, because even in UNOS, there's data about tobacco smoking, there's data about um, cocaine use, um, there's data about alcohol, but marijuana is still lumped into all other drugs. So even to do retrospective multi-center analyses, trying to look and see if it affects outcomes is not really possible given the infrastructure that we have right now. Um, and I would totally wholeheartedly, you know, endorse what was said about, you know, it really not mattering based on the state, whether it's legal or not, because, you know, we have rules about uh, tobacco smoking, as has been alluded to, and that is obviously legal. But I think to me, I think it's up to us and the community uh, in a broader sense to try and find some way to collect data about this, either prospectively or uh, retrospectively to try and give us an answer that we're comfortable with. Because I think it's not, for me, it feels like we're still, it's just a lot of speculation. Kathleen, any other thoughts on what are the next steps, so to speak? I think it's, it's going to become more and more important for people not to seek out illegal ways to be obtaining, because I think when you, when you go that route, you know, getting it from a controlled source and and trying to get product that um, you know doesn't have potential other toxicities that could be exposing you to something else harmful, 
I think is really important. And so I think, you know, I agree with what Sylvia said and just having more studies out there. I think that that's going to be extremely valuable. Um, and I think too, just not, in, I think encouraging people to get product that um, if they're going to choose to use marijuana, of course, would be to, to have product that I think is, is going to be a little bit more predictable, but you know, whether or not it's legal versus not legal or medical or recreational, I think still you just have so much variability, which also makes it increasingly difficult to be able to try to study. Well, I think you three are some of, frankly, the experts on this issue. And you guys have, you, you've all written quite a bit, which I think, you know, reading some of your work and seeing what happens in professional practice, it's really, um, this is really an important issue. And it's, it's obviously going to continue to come up again and again, particularly as the laws change and the amount of marijuana people are using changes over time. It seems to be an issue that's only going in one direction. So uh, I applaud all of you for taking it on professionally, writing about stuff that we're, we're seeing in day-to-day practice and bringing it to light. I want to give anyone a last opportunity if you have any final thoughts on this issue moving forward before we wrap up today. I think for us as providers, you know, I, speaking as somebody who just had a patient uh, today um, tell me that turned to using a THC product, you know, he's a bridge to transplant um, bad and he saw several providers before me, but um, didn't necessarily feel comfortable to, to disclose that information. So I think making it an environment where people are open to the different things that they're using and I think potentially peeling back some of the stigma that's around it. But then also for us, uh, educating ourselves on, you know, maybe it's not just asking, do you use marijuana? Do you, do you smoke it? Do you vape it? You know, trying to get around some of the questions to potentially see what patients are actually doing to make sure that we're evaluating them in the most accurate way. Celia, any closing thoughts? Well, I think, and I totally agree with that, that statistic that um, was referenced earlier about people not even asking about marijuana use for people who are being considered for advanced therapies and transplant. And I mean, I think it extends to even the general cardiologist, given more and more what we're learning about um, marijuana and cardiovascular health more broadly. And I would just also put in a plug for people who are interested in reading more about this topic that the AHA put out a scientific statement about this topic. And I would encourage other people to look at that as a reference. Uh, And it really touches upon all aspects of cardiovascular disease, and I think is an excellent reference and resource. I think that's a a very important point. That was a fantastic article. And uh, very well written, very long, and (laughs) provides a historical background so that we have a better sense of why there's different regulations and and kind of the fight along the way. So I think that's very important. I think I also just want to add one thing is that we've been talking more about, you know, getting high, but in fairness, uh, that actually the CBD oils you know, if I go get my hair done, I'll tell you that on the counter is like a little oil. If you want to feel good too and get your joints, <laughs> make your joints pain go away, go try this oil. So um, there's a lot of actually products out there, but it, um, you know, it's not just the THC, it's the CBD as well that interferes uh, with our drugs. And I think that, Celia, as you said, you know, we need to actually do this. Um, we're not going to be able to do it prospectively where we randomize patients that can't be done, at least in the United States um, at this time, very easily. But what we could do is actually make 
a decision as to what questions we're going to ask the patients and what we're going to record to create a better registry for the future so that we can continue to analyze and really ask that question about, you know, about cancer if you smoke, um, because there's probably a risk, but we don't know what it is since the um, products from any combustion is going to be actually similar to tobacco, but you can't differentiate now without really good questions in advance. So thank you so much for, for inviting us. Well, thank you all for joining. This was really a fantastic discussion. And like I said, uh, I've enjoyed reading all of your work on this, and I'm sure there'll be more to come from all of you. So thanks again for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. For more information on advances and late-breaking news in the field of heart failure care, make sure to subscribe to the podcast or visit hfsa.org slash heartfailurebeat to learn all about the podcast created by the Heart Failure Society of America. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining and have a great day.